Hey, what's up? I'm Anthony. And I'm Dan. And we are J&J Missions, spreading the gospel by all means, one soul at a time. We give live talks, we make YouTube videos, and you can find us all over social media. And as you probably figured, we have a podcast. Whether we're giving spiritual tips, deliberating about current events, or talking saints and devotionals, we want to bring the Catholic faith to you in a totally orthodox, yet relatable, down-to-earth way. If you want to support us, head over to our website, www.jmjmissions.com. Hello, hello to everybody. It's another episode of the JMJ Missions Podcast. I am this session's host, Daniel Palmieri, joined by my co-host, Anthony McCullough. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a really awesome topic, one very near and dear to my heart personally. We're going to be talking about a very underrated and really cool, very interesting saint, her life and what we can take from it. And that is St. Gemma Galgani. But before that, we got some small talk. Ant, what you got? That's right. Uh, Today is May 1st as we're recording, and that's the feast day of St. Joseph the Worker. So I figured uh, what a good time to talk about maybe some of the odd jobs that we've worked as a a youth. That's really good. So what's like one of the most (laughs) odd jobs that you've had to do? An interesting odd job. I mean, I'll go with my first job, and you got me into this. Uh, That was the movie theater. 17 years old, I worked at United Artists near my house. That was a good first job for a lot of reasons. Yeah. I think um, it really taught me how to deal with the public and that (laughs) most of the time the public's in a bad mood (laughs) and how to get around that. Yeah, it definitely teaches you patience, humility. I'm a fan of having like a job as a teenager. Um, For me, it was a great job. It was a great group of people I was around. Um, A little bit of drama because it's, you know, all the managers are like in their early 20s and late teens and all the workers are like 16, 17. Uh, And the worst part was you couldn't sit. I remember that, and I wasn't used to that. It didn't yet. let you sit down. I couldn't. Yeah. St- I would be standing for three hours straight, and my legs would start killing. Yeah, me. I remember my feet would my and my whole entire all my legs right. would just be in so much pain. Yep. And that took a long time to get used to. I totally forgot about that. Now I stand all day teaching, and doesn't even I don't even flinch. Same doesn't even bother yeah. me. Man, what was I doing? Like seventeen, I should have had a lot more energy. I think I was just like a wimp. I no, I think <laughs> it's just the bones aren't used to it. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, <laughs> interesting. And didn't you have a story of? Uh, one time you were cleaning one of the theaters and a kid like launched a, <laughs> one of the workers launched a glass Snapple bottle or something. Yeah. Every now and then the general manager would come and clean the theaters with us. So after the, each movie, we would have to go in there and sweep up all the popcorn and throw, throw out all the soda. And actually working that made me from that point on never leave any trash behind in a movie theater. Cause you know, that's someone's job and that's not easy to do. It's true. Anyway, uh, one, we used to goof around. We had to make it as fun as possible. And this one kid, I'll, I'll tell you his name. It's not like anyone's ever going to find this guy. <laughs> his name was Kyle. <laughs> and Kyle was a rather larger gentleman and just a funny guy. And uh, this, one day we were cleaning a theater and there was a glass Arizona iced tea bottle, totally full. Like maybe the person <laughs> took one sip and they left that bottle behind. And our general manager was in that theater cleaning with us. And then Kyle got my attention, said, yo. Then he said, Kobe. And he shot from the from the last row of the theater all the way down to the trash can at the bottom. And of course, he completely missed, shattered everywhere, and the iced tea and shards of glass go flying. And Kyle just said, whoops. But it was probably my favorite day at Regal. <laughs> I never forgot that ever since you told me. Yeah. Um, how about the, na- the nacho cheese kid? <laughs> this was before I had Christ in my life. <laughs> These this poor- is, yeah, this is a general warning. This is all pre, <laughs> <Yeah>. pre-conversion. <laughs> These poor people listening to our podcast have to listen to my 16-year-old woes. <laughs> there was a dude. It was a busy day, and there was a line was just out the wazoo. 
And this guy comes up and he wants pretzel nuggets and he wants cheese with his pretzel nuggets. <laughs> so I give him cheese. And then he comes back to me and he says, he's like, nah, man, that's not enough cheese. <laughs> so like I turned around, I said, no problem. And I squirted like another half of an ounce of cheese in there. Like I barely added any cheese. And then I brought it back to him again. And he was like, dude, that's not enough cheese. <laughs> so at this point I'm annoyed and I was angsty and 16 or 17. And I went back to the cheese machine and I just held the button down. <laughs> And I drowned this dude's pretzel nuggets in cheese. Like, you couldn't even find the pretzel nuggets. And then I brought it back to him with a little smirk on my face. And then he called me a few choice words that I can't say on the podcast. <laughs> but I deserved it, honestly. That's, that's Like, all I had to do was give him a little bit more cheese. Like, it's so easy to see clearly, like, when you're mature and older. But as 17, I was like, I hate this guy. <laughs> so funny. I actually use that, not that story, but that idea, my conversion story, when I give it to retreats, like how before my conversion, if I had nasty feelings towards someone, that's just, I just rolled with them. As yeah. a teenager, especially, you get all kinds of nasty thoughts. Like, you know, you get an attitude on you <laughs> and I just roll with it. I would just let that dominate me. It was kind of funny now thinking about it, but interesting stories from the movie theater. And then you and I also both had another job. We worked at a golf course. Yeah, together. you got me that job too. And you know what else is weird? Then we both became teachers. Yeah. And now, now we run a business. Yeah. Our mm. lives are, are very similar. Yeah. <laughs> we were both were in seminary. That's right. <laughs> but it's, you know, and we both had converged at the same spot. You know, none of this was planned though. Yeah. This is how the Lord just happened to yep. map it all out. Very, and, very And very now you play pickleball. And now, that's true. Although that's yep. not a job, although that'd be cool if it was a job. Yeah, one day. <laughs> one day. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll take JMJF over over anything and that's why you guys our listeners could support us by <laughs> going to anchor a little plug there uh, and you can support us monthly if you want to so we can keep doing what we do anyway odd jobs yes uh i think that's about all i had the weirdest job i ever did was when i was in seminary we had to get a job for the summer and i i worked in masonry help putting in a driveway one summer i didn't know that yeah when i was 25 i, w- I was not cut out for it like you know I'm, i've always like been like i guess athletic but i just have never had a knack for construction or for hands-on work or anything like that i had no clue what i was doing and the people my dad was friends with the guy who had the company who was doing this yeah. so he was just giving me something to do give me a job and they were just being real patient with me but... were you there like eight hours a day yeah yeah how, like, many, how uh, long uh probably from like 9 a.m till no i mean like how many weeks oh probably like i don't know Eight or nine weeks, maybe. Really? Yeah, it was like two months. Where was I during this time of your life? Psh, I don't know. <laughs> Beats me, man. <laughs> I have no recollection. Yeah, it was of in this. Philly. It was. I was a construction job in Philly. I was on. Yeah. I feel like there's a fifty percent chance you're making this I'm up. I'm not making this up at all. I really did it. I, I, I definitely know it's <laughs> when, not my calling. Like 2015. Calling. Yeah, that, that was exactly. It was 2015. What was I doing? <laughs> all right. I don't know, man. You're <laughs> yeah. obviously like out in East Jabib doing <laughs> yeah. something. I don't know. You're kayaking in Alaska or something because I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> you know. <laughs> Well, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That was the weirdest, most random odd job I've ever had. But yeah. Nice. All right. Well, without further ado, we're going to take a quick break and uh, we'll come back with an incredible life of my favorite saint straight up. And that is Saint Gemma Galgani. Don't go away. All right, we're back, and our saint, again, a, a powerful, powerful saint from heaven, very underrated, although she's getting more recognition recently, St. Gemma Galgani, a more recent saint. Her feast day was April 11th, also. Rock's birthday. Also Rock's birthday. So her feast day passed, but, you know, just thinking about the month of April in, in general, especially uh, during Holy Week and 
the Lenten and the Easter time of year just reminds you of those passionate saints. Um, and by passionate, I'm using that word very um, specifically because St. Gemma always wanted to be a passionist nun, although she never got to be one, uh, but someone everyone can relate to, uh, who actually, I'll, at the end, I'll give you a little story. She really reached out to me. The reason I know about her is because four times in two days, she reached out to me to, to, to help me with something, um, and I know who she was before that, and I mean that from heaven she did that. So the saints really find you. We could do a whole new podcast on that in the future. So I'm going to tell a little story about her life, and then Anthony, as we go along, will color commentate, and we'll just comment on anything that we think is really notable or that could help us for our souls and for all the listeners. So St. Gemma was born in 1878 in Lucca, Italy. Uh, so she's from the city of Lucca. Now, some saints had massive conversions. You think of St. Augustine, St. Saint, uh, Paul, Mary Magdalene. Some other saints were just very innocent from the very early times when they were young. You think of Padre Pio, and in this case, St. Gemma. Her dad nicknamed her his little gem of Christ because she was so innocent as a girl, just very, very innocent, always talking about Jesus, always wanting to learn more about Jesus. She grew up very happy, um, upper middle class life. Her dad was a successful pharmacist, so um, family business was going well. Um, she had many brothers and sisters, I think six or seven brothers and sisters she had. And the closest person to her life was her, to, in her, to her, I'm sorry, in her life was her mom. Uh, now her mom uh, was the one that taught her all about Jesus and instilled in her a great love for Jesus and the sacraments. However, around age seven is when tragedy struck. And here's what's really interesting about St. Gemma's life. St. Gemma, you think, had it easy. You think, she, you know, you ever see pictures of her? She was very beautiful and uh, very normal looking uh, Italian girl, and her life was anything but normal, and it was anything but easy. After having a normal and easy upbringing, uh, tragedy after tragedy struck her, starting at the tender age of seven. Uh, her mom got tuberculosis, a really bad case of it. And again, like I said, her mom was the closest person to her in her life. So back then, uh, you got confirmation early around age seven, and that's when St. Gemma got her first locution or um, interior voice that she heard. A locution can be when you hear something either from Jesus or a saint or an angel or something, the Blessed Mother, and it's either external or internal, but you hear something, and you know exactly what the message is, whether it's a feeling or a, an actual real you know, audio kind of uh, sound, audible sound, I should say. So she uh, has her confirmation at age seven which is the age they did it back then. And she stays after just to have another mass, just to thank Jesus. So she just stays after for another mass. First off, what kind of seven-year-old does that? That's awesome. <laughs> just stay, like, yeah, I'm going to thank Jesus for my confirmation. And what was that confirmation mass? Probably an hour and 45 yeah. minutes long. I'll just stay for another one. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so she stays for the second mass. And I believe towards the end of mass, as she's looking at the crucifix, she has her first locution of Jesus. And this locution, Jesus' voice, she hears him say, Will you give me your mom? Will you give me, give me your mama? And uh, now her mom being so close to her, she didn't want to say yes to that, but she also never wanted to say no to Jesus. So in her prayer, she said, yes, but as, as long as you take me to, to heaven as well. And Jesus said, no, I can't do that. For now, you have to stay with your father. I, I, need, I need you to give your mom to me totally unreservedly. I will take you to heaven soon, but like you have things to do before then. And through tears in her diary, she said she was obliged to say yes to this. So she said, okay, Jesus, but she was really sad. She ran home to check on her mom, and that is when she found out her mom was really, really bad, had taken a turn for the worse. So that locution was absolutely legitimate. She was sent somewhere else. Her dad didn't want her getting the disease either or uh, becoming overcome with grief. So she was sent to live with, I believe, uh, relatives, and that is when she learned that her mom did pass away. Now, interestingly enough, this served her in a good way. She had a healthy desire for heaven ever since then, since the point of seven years old. And we call it a healthy desire 
because um, it's not like she hated life or, you know, was like just depressed or miserable or anything like that. She was a very holy, normal, natural girl, young woman. Uh, but um, she she didn't take this world that seriously from that point on. If things got really good for her, she didn't really take it that seriously. If things got really bad for her, she didn't really take it that seriously. She kind of just thought, I'm only here to get to heaven so I can see Jesus and my mom again. So just an amazing, that at the very early age of seven, you see how God's kind of showing her and us that um, our goal here is to get to heaven. And that's that's the only thing that's going to matter in the end. So uh, ever since then, uh, things got worse and worse. She grew up a uh, um, little bit sad from that point on, on although uh, she was very, very um, close to Jesus. At age nine and ten, uh, not around that time, she got her first communion. And she made all these intense resolutions to Jesus after her first communion. Like every time she heard the clock, sh- like, you know, the strike, whatever the new hour was. <laughs> and I just. <laughs> that kind of sounded like a I clock. I just accidentally hit the mic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sounded like a clock. Whenever she would hear the clock, the clock chime, she said she would repeat three times, my Jesus, mercy. She made a, a promise to uh, always uh, do like fastings, fasting and stuff before every feast day of the Blessed Mother. Nine or ten year old making these promises, right? to fast and to pray certain things every day out of love for Jesus. So she was very, very just head and shoulders spiritually above everybody else in her age. Um, however, as I said, things got tougher and tougher because at age 13, uh, her um, older brother Tony died, and she was very close to her older brother. So by age 13, she's already had her mom pass away, her older brother pass away. Uh, her dad couldn't watch all the kids on his own. He had to provide, so she went to live with her aunt and uncle. So that was tough for her, not seeing her brothers and sisters enough. I don't know how many of her siblings ended up staying with her aunt and uncle, but I know it was not all of them. So things are already getting harder. But as things get harder and as she grows as a teenager, she's growing in virtue. Uh, Her high standard was already present with all those intense promises she made after her first communion. Um, She got even holier, though. A really cool example, a mystical example, happened uh, around the age of, I believe, her early teens. Her dad missed her and... and, um, and, you know, couldn't, wasn't living with her at the time. So her dad really loved her and was very affectionate with her and bought her a really expensive gold chain and watch for her to wear. And when she got it, number one, because she looked very good in it and she was very, very pretty. That's another thing. She would get lots and lots of attention from everybody for her looks. A very, very um, good-looking young lady. Um, because she looked really good with this jewelry on and also because it was a gift from her dad, she immediately put it on at like like i said a normal age where a girl would love to have something like that 12 13 14 years old and she runs outside to show her friends and kind of show off how she looks to her friends and everyone's like oh my gosh she looks so good you know and she goes back in when she gets back to her room she has a an unexpected visitor uh someone that she saw a lot but this time was unexpected her guardian angel she frequently could see her guardian angel and had many visions of her angel and saints and jesus and her guardian angel looked at her and very nicely but very firmly um, said to her, the only jewelry that should adorn a true spouse of Christ is the crown of thorns and the cross. Like, wow. Jeez. Like, don't ever draw attention to yourself because it's not going to save any souls. It's just totally pointless, you know. And now, is it bad to wear jewelry? No, but no. how did she react? She said she was so hurt by this. Like, not hurt by a guardian angel, but, but she was so, like, sad at her actions that she immediately took the jewelry off the watch off put it down uh never wore it again and then she also had a ring that she was wearing and took that off and never wore jewelry again yeah uh and she said like her whole mantra was that she would do anything for jesus she would never want any attention for herself all the attention had to be for jesus that reminds me of the rich man parable 
just because when he Jesus said go and sell all you have and he walked away sad like Gemma didn't walk away sad oh wow like, you know, she had to get rid of the jewelry but she just did it right yeah that's amazing that's a it's a, a depth at that young age that like mm-hmm. most people don't have like all you need is Jesus to be happy and she completely lived that out that was one very rare moment where she her guardian angel kind of I wouldn't say yelled at her but just nicely said like that's not you know gonna help any that's you know what, what's that have to do with helping other people or Jesus and she was like oh man so she immediately never wore jewelry again from that point on. Uh, and another another funny story that I don't have in my notes here, but that I read one time in a book was that people would, as she got older, people recognized how holy she was, especially after her miraculous cure, cure which we're going to get to. Um, people would like start saying, oh my gosh, you're so holy. Look at all the amazing graces God's doing through you. And she'd be literally, literally horrified. Like, not just false humility. Oh no, stop it. Like, no, she was horrified by this she was legitimately kind of like Padre Pio Mm -hmm. a lot of similarities between the two completely confused as to why Jesus was doing all these beautiful things through her soul and her heart probably why she was so holy because she was so humble right that's why Jesus was able to do these great things through her is because she literally didn't think she was better than anybody else one time when she was staying with uh, another family rumors were spreading of this holy woman with all these gifts and these charisms from the Holy Spirit and a bishop came to visit one time and the family, knowing St. Gemma, did not... She was living with, uh, f- like, friends. And uh, later on, this happened, so I'll get to why this all happened. But uh, the family did not tell Gemma uh, why the bishop was coming. The bishop had heard how holy she was and wanted to personally meet her is what it was. They just said, oh, we're having the bishop come for dinner. And she, of course, was like, oh, great, yes, the bishop, that's great, you know. So the bishop gets to the front door of the house, knocks on the door, and Gemma was there like guest but she also tried to be like kind of a maid for them and do whatever she could around the house so she goes to answer the door and immediately she says oh oh you know your excellency you know nice to see you and the bishop's eyeing her up like like vetting her every move and it becomes clear to her after just a moment that he's not there for the family he's there for her he's there to see if she's really what people say she is she was so freaked out by this that the family had a cat she saw the cat immediately just grabbed it and started stroking it in a weird way like pretending she was crazy literally she was like oh and like, and like like stroking the cat like on purpose pretending she had something wrong with her yeah and the bishop was like yeah she's weird and left right and like that she did that on purpose because she was so absolutely horrified by the idea that somebody would think she was holy wasn't there a saint where everyone thought that he was i forget it was like maybe that he was so smart or something like that or he didn't want the reputation of being incredibly smart, so he purposely did dumb things. Philip Neary. Yeah. Philip Neary would purposely do all kinds of crazy stuff just to keep himself humble, and so yeah. people wouldn't think he was holy. In fact, if there was rumors going around, oh, Philip, he's so holy, he's so amazing, he would actually like walk into a meeting with cardinals like dressed like an, like an idiot on yeah. purpose just so just so people wouldn't think that he was like that, so it wouldn't take a tax on his humility. And, <laughs> and honestly, when people are talking about, look how holy this person is, look how holy that person is, it can do some good like after they've died, if they're made a saint or whatever, but while they're still alive, it doesn't really do any... It almost takes the attention off of Jesus, mm-hmm. and and it's interesting. It's not a competition. So Gemma understood that, so she literally starts talking to the cat like she's nuts, and she never <laughs> did that, which is really funny. Uh, so uh, she gets older as a teenager, continues to grow. Um, her rebellious phase... So, you know, teenagers go through rebellious phases, right? Here's her rebellious phase. She would she used to pray hours a day. She would get up in the middle of the night and pray for 20, 30 minutes, start praying the rosary, you know, all kinds of things she would do, fasting and stuff. When she was like 15, she went through her like dry spiritual rebellious phase. And here's what it consisted of. She prayed for only like an hour straight 
adoration every day instead of three, <laughs> which was her normal thing for like every That's day. That's hilarious. Yeah. So, uh, you know, doing horrible my, right. when she was 15. She was only praying <laughs> so for, rebellious. An hour, yeah, for an hour every day in adoration instead of three. <laughs> it's like, you kidding me? <laughs> so very, very holy, holy girl. Uh, at 18, she made new promises to God. And here's what she said. She said at age 18, and this is when she had already progressed past that phase and had grown by leaps and bounds. She was already living a saintly life by the time she was 18. She apologized to Jesus. We know all this because her spiritual director made her write it all down in her diary and her autobiography. There's so much information we have on her that she wrote down under obedience because her spiritual director, a very holy priest, made her write all this down. Um, She apologized to Jesus for living such a tepid life. Tepid, obviously, meaning like just, just, you know mundane like mediocre mediocre like i'm sorry jesus i have i've loved you like in a mediocre way and i'm not going to do that anymore that's the promises she made at 18 she made more promises and this time she promised from the her heart outward from the bottom of her heart that she would suffer anything god wanted to out of love for jesus she said jesus give me any suffering you want and i will give that to you because i haven't been living the way i should for her to say something like that is unbelievable i mean and it shows how humble she is I'll tell you for a fact, after she died, her spiritual director said, you know, she's dead now, so it's not going to hurt her humility. He says, I heard her confessions, and I can't tell you her actual sins because that's breaking the seal, but here's what I will tell you. I don't think she ever intentionally sinned her entire life. He said she had sins, but she never actually thought about offending God and went through with it in her entire life. Almost like a mortal sin. Yeah, mortal sin or even like an intentional venial sin. Uh Like, that's, that's amazing. So... For her to say to Jesus at 18, I'm so sorry, I haven't been good enough, just shows the insane humility she had. So um, at this point, she got a pain in her foot right after saying this prayer and making this commitment. The the pain in the foot got so bad that she had to go in for surgery. And let me tell you what a high pain tolerance she had. She goes in for surgery, and back then they didn't have anesthesia, they just had chloroform. Uh, I don't know if you ever watched one of those movies where like they spray the towel and you put it over someone's face and they just go out you know that's that's chloroform so a gigantic hole needed to be drilled in her foot like that that's that hurts <laughs> so they said okay we're gonna give you chloroform put you out for this and she said no 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 i want to feel the pain <laughs> who's that remind that you of, of rocco in our conversion which we will get to at one point when we have a larger <laughs> audience we don't want to waste our conversion stories not that the people listening would be a waste for you we just wanted to reach more people so um so Rocco had a moment like this. But anyway, she uh, she said, I want to feel the pain. And she apparently just looked at the crucifix. And as they they thought, the doctors thought she was absolutely nuts for this. They drilled a big hole in her foot with absolutely no anesthesia. And uh, they said she made no sound except at the most painful point. She made a quick little like, ow, you know. And then she apologized to everybody there and then profusely apologized for Jesus and immediately just kept looking at the crucifix. <laughs> That's how amazing she was, right? So um, just a, a, an example of her pain tolerance. Um, that's insane. I mean, like, I, I don't know, get a little scrape and I like freak out. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Not really, but you get it. (laughs) And that's what Jesus can do with pain. He can turn it into good. And she understood that. So, um, if that didn't, uh, was, wasn't bad enough. So her mom dies at at uh, seven, her brother dies at 13. She has to live other places in her, during her teenage years, gets her surgery in her, on her foot. And right after that, um, her dad actually died as well. I don't know what he died from, but at age 19, her dad dies. And back then, I don't believe they had life insurance or anything like that. Um, and so her reaction to her dad's death was actually shows just incredibly how holy she was, yet how human she was. It kind of reminds you of Jesus, how he was insanely holy, but also perfectly human. Um, she had said that knowing her dad was sick, she had already given it over to Jesus. She already said, Jesus, whatever you want to do with my dad, I trust you, and I'm not going to despair over it. It's your call, you know. 
And, um, but so even though she had already accepted it and given it over to God heroically, when she first heard the news, someone told her that your dad died. She fainted. Yeah. She straight up fainted mm-hmm. and she said she was sick the rest of the day. Yeah. So she was a normal human being like, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus doesn't make us not human anymore. He just elevates our human nature. Right. Um, so her dad passed away back then. There's no life insurance. So her dad, before he died for the last few years before he died, his pharmacy business wasn't doing well. He had a lot of debt. And so after he died, the very next day, St. Gemma said it was one of the worst days of her life. The day after her dad dies, imagine, like, it's going to be cold and sad in the yeah. house. Her and her brothers and sisters are just trying to figure out what the heck is going on. It's like, it's a horrible feeling after a relative passes away, like, the next day. And as they're all sitting in the house, creditors from the bank literally walk in the empty house and start measuring all the furniture to see what they can take because their dad owed money. They didn't say, sorry, your father died. They just walk right in the house and start taking all the furniture away. St. Gemma, the only belongings she had that were strictly hers was a little purse with a few dollars in it, and they took it from her and said, we need that. Your dad owed us money, and then she gave it up. She said they were so cold, so, so tough. Now she has nowhere else to go. She couldn't live with her aunt and uncle anymore for different reasons, so she ended up having to kind of be an orphan. Now she was 19, but the reason you can call her an orphan was because – Back then, like she, you know, women couldn't really provide for themselves, so she had to just be be the house guest of a family. I don't think she even knew that well, and that's where she lived the rest of her life from age nineteen on. The only thing she had to look forward to in this new house was just doing household chores for the family and just praying. The only thing she looked forward to was prayer. She didn't have much of a future. Uh, she how was, old was she for this? Nineteen. Nineteen. Yeah. So tragedy after tragedy strikes, and she has no future. She could have had a future, weirdly enough, though, because uh, a lot of guys liked her, and she had two proposals, but she wanted to be a passionist nun. That was her greatest desire, was to be a passionist sister and to give her life to Jesus. So apparently there's this one young Italian, successful Italian guy who all the girls liked who literally saw her and was taken aback by her beauty and literally proposed to her. And she was so freaked out <laughs> that, like, this guy proposed her. Like, the idea of getting married and not belonging totally to Jesus was so foreign to her that she ran out of town <laughs> to get away from him for, like, days on end. And no one knew where she was. And later she came back and said it was because I don't want him, like, following me. <laughs> I think St. Catherine of Siena was, was like that. A lot of guys liked her, and they would ask her to marry them. And then so she just – she had, like, long hair. So she yeah. just grabbed scissors and started chopping her hair. Yeah. <laughs> not, right. not that short hair isn't attractive, but – she wasn't even trying to make it like a haircut. She was just like chopping it off. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so St. Gemma had a lot of attention like that. She was stalked actually one time. She would always go for walks as a teenager um, around the park and pray the rosary and help the homeless people that live near her house. And she had to stop doing that because a neighbor noticed that there was a guy who was like stalking her and stuff like that. So um, little things like that that Gemma had to endure. Uh, but also kind of normal too. You can kind of see this, the realistic part playing out. Uh, so her dad dies. So now she's living with that family. And um, if that wasn't bad enough, in that same year, I think less than a year after her dad dies, she gets meningitis. She got meningitis and also developed a curvature of the spine. So she was hospitalized. Her spine was curved and out of place. The meningitis made her a, a partially deaf, paralyzed from the waist down, and that and like and um and she was and all and all her all her hair fell out and um also like her there was like tumors in her head that were like combining. It was weird. So she was pretty much on her deathbed, as I said spine curved, hair falling out, uh, partially deaf and paralyzed from the waist down. Doctor said she has a few days to live, and she just resigned to die and said, Jesus, that's fine. Take me to you. However, what happened was one of the nuns who visited her, she didn't have too many visitors in the hospital, but one of the nuns uh, comes to her and gives her a book on St. Gabriel Pacenti, a passionist priest, a young priest who had died just shortly before Gemma, I believe, was born. 
she reads about his life and was so enamored with his life, how much he loved Jesus, that um, she asked like him to kind of be her patron saint. She said she could feel his presence in everything that she did from that point on, every moment on that on that bed while she was suffering. And then uh, finally, um, one of the other nuns says, you should do a novena. Like maybe Jesus doesn't want you to die. Maybe you should do a novena. So she tries to do a novena to the sacred heart of Jesus. She was so sick. She tries once, doesn't get it done, goes one day. Tries a second time, only gets two days done. And she's like literally dying at this point. She's getting thin. She's getting frail doctors. Like she's, she's days away from death. Finally, she really starts getting it done. And um, on the eighth day of the novena uh, to the sacred heart, all of a sudden she, uh, as she's saying the prayers late at night, she hears rosary beads starting to uh, jangle and click against the back of her bedpost. And she looks back and she sees St. Gabriel standing there. And he just looks at her and says, my sister, my sister. And he says, pretty much paraphrasing, but he says, let's pray this novena. I don't, I, God's not done with you yet. And how long before uh, this did he pass away? Uh, probably 30 or 40 years before this. Yeah. So she was having a real vision of St. Gabriel Basenti. They say the prayers. And on the ninth day of the novena, she had a literal miraculous cure. And to the astonishment, and it was a total miracle, the amazement of all the doctors and nurses, she literally walked right out of the hospital bed. Um, that novena, in that moment when she was on her deathbed, her something, she reached a whole other state. I mean, she was already living a saintly life, but she reached a higher level. Um, she had been okay on that deathbed with either being healed or dying and going to Jesus or even suffering longer in the horrible state she was in. When you get to the point where you're okay with even suffering longer in the horrible state you're in, you've reached a whole, like you have become, you've become very much like Christ. So she uh, heard Jesus say to her, it was either Jesus or her guardian angel say to her after the cure, this is one of many graces you're going to receive from now on. And it was shortly after that, she got a very special gift. What gift do you think she got after that? Which Stigmata. Has, yep, the stigmata, uh, which is reserved for only those that really understand suffering. Um, just as a reminder, the stigmata are the miraculous wounds of Christ that bleed on a person's hands, feet, side. Sometimes they get the crowning of thorns. Sometimes they get the shoulder wound and the whips and stuff. St. Gemma, from that point on, got the stigmata every Thursday night. Um, she got all of the above, uh, inclu and, um, including the crown of thorns. Just to show you how much pain she was in when she had the stigmata, which she did accept lovingly and offer back to Jesus. Remember the surgery she had in her foot? Mm -hmm. Hardly any, you know, any whimper of pain from her. Her aunt said that one time, I believe it was her aunt, either her aunt or her spiritual director, one time was sitting next to her on the couch, and they were just talking with people. And all of a sudden, she said um, that Gemma... Uh, got like real reserved and started to cover up her hands and all of a sudden like her face got like very very serious and she was clearly going through a lot of pain um and then she closed her eyes like as if to pray and like tears started streaming down her face and then she politely excused herself and went to leave and what her aunt saw as she was leaving was blood trickling down her hands and down her feet and like left left a trail of blood she would just go up to her room and offer all the pain up to jesus for that whole night uh, and sal to, to, to save souls. So she always is offering up sufferings to save souls. She said, any soul I could save through my sufferings, Jesus, let me, let me suffer with you, which is just, that's the hallmark of a, not just a saint, but a great saint, a great, great saint. Um, so amazing, amazing stuff there. Um, on top of that, she also received, uh, other, uh, charismatic gifts like prophecy, uh, she could read hearts. She wasn't known for it because she was so shy. She wasn't going around reading people's hearts. And she was so shy that she kind of kept her holiness hidden. Not so many people knew about it except the people near her. Um, kind of, you think of the bishop, right? She like, didn't let the bishop know that she was holy. So she wasn't known for reading hearts, but she absolutely had that gift of supernatural knowledge. She had an amazing, generous prayer life. 
Uh, and one of the things you said you remembered about her from hearing about her in the past, you want to share that? Yeah, uh, one of the few uh, facts that I, I do know about St. Gemma before this was that whenever she would see someone that was suffering, maybe, you know, a mom, uh, you know, with children, and she was, like, clearly sick or clearly suffering, St. Gemma would see this woman and then ask God to give that woman maybe three more years of life and then take three years off of Gemma's life. And she did this a few times, and she told her spiritual director about it, and her spiritual director said, you got to stop. You got to <laughs> stop doing this because God's going to honor that. Right. And then how old was she when she passed? 25. So, so maybe, I'm, I'm not saying that's exactly why she passed away at 25, but... You never I'm, know. I'm sure it was part of it. I mean, she really did not take her life seriously. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in the most positive way. Like, she would just give anything. Like, to see a soul be saved, she would give anything. In fact, her spiritual director was skeptical of her. He was a very holy priest who was known for having dealt with people with supernatural charisms. So he hears about this young woman, and he thought she was just hysterical or making it up or nuts or something like that. That's literally what he thought at first. Like, oh, it's a young girl. She's making this stuff up. So she goes, and he decides to meet with the family. So he meets with the family, and he's the one that ended up writing the book on her, by the way. So if you ever have a chance to read her book, it's called The Life of St. Gemma Galgani by Venerable Father Germanus. Um, he's the one that writes oh, so this book. so he's a venerable? He's a venerable. Oh, I didn't know he's that. that holy. Yeah, her spiritual director. Very, very smart, smart, wise guy. So he thinks she's just making it up. He, that's his assumption. He goes to the house to meet with her, and her family says, oh, yeah, she's up praying. She doesn't know you're here because uh, – or maybe she did, but, like, they didn't really give her details or else she would kind of avoid these things because she would be embarrassed. So they said she's actually in prayer. She's in ecstasy in her room right now. No big deal. Right, no big deal. So he's, like, uh, you know, probably rolling his eyes, like, all right, well, let's see what's going on here. He walks into her room, and she's she's in prayer talking to Jesus. And you can it's, like, literally like she's having a conversation with Jesus, like someone's on the phone. You can hear what she's saying, but you can't hear what, he's, what Jesus is saying back. And she's pleading to Jesus to save the soul of some unknown sinner. She's saying, Jesus, I know he's done X. I know he's done Y. I know he's done Z. But you've saved me. You can save him. Please, anything. I'll offer any suffering for you to save his soul. Yes, Jesus, I know he doesn't deserve it. I know he's done this and that. And she starts naming very specific sins this, this guy has done. I know he's a young man who, who's, but don't let him die. You know, let him be saved. And then finally she goes, well, Jesus, if you won't be able to save him, maybe your mom will be able to save him. So she says, Mary, please get your son to save this poor sinner. There's a pause. And then she says, oh my gosh, he's saved. The sinner is saved. Thank you so much, Jesus. I'll offer any suffering for you in return for his soul. Now this guy, the priest is like, what the heck did I just witness? <laughs> or like, or, what? <laughs> so he, he has a few private moments with Gemma. Yet when she talks to him, he's absolutely struck at how natural and how authentic and normal she is and how she clearly does not seem to be making anything up. Um. He still, he says a prayer like, Lord, you know, if this is of you, let me know. If this girl is of you, coming from real gifts. He goes back to his rectory for the night. Immediately after putting his coat down and his hat at the rectory, there's a frantic knock on his door. He opens the door. There is a young man crying, kneeling on the doorstep saying, Father, please, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to confession, please. He, he uh, takes him in, and this guy, word for word, describes the exact sins that Gemma had mentioned. Really? Yep, word for word. So the confession was so um, specific that he knew that it was St. Gemma who had offered her like prayers that saved his soul. And there was one sin that Gemma mentioned that the father remembered that the guy forgot to say. And he goes, uh, did you happen to do this too? And the, the guy goes, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I did that as well. How did you know? And he explained there was a very holy woman who apparently her prayers saved your soul. Oh, that's funny. So that's what like totally affirmed for this priest. Yeah, no, she's not making this up, you know. So amazing stuff. Okay, eventually, her, um, 
the devil attracted her as well though because the devil's attracted to her in, in like a negative sense like he wanted to take her soul down uh when you get to a point where you're that holy you're saving that many souls your prayer life is that great the devil can't get you through normal sins he can't even get you through normal things like anxiety and sadness and anger and stuff like that so what he does he just starts just physically attacking you <laughs> very few souls get to this point but she was physically assaulted from that point on from after her miraculous cure. She had to deal with these things all the time. The devil actually tried to burn her diary. So she wrote down all her events of her life in a journal. And apparently one time she saw a demon come in her room and she didn't think much of it or come in the house. She didn't think much of it because she was praying and doing other things. She saw these things a lot actually. But then she went to go get her diary that her spiritual director you know, commanded her to write in and it was gone. And it was just absolutely missing. And she realized, okay, I think the devil's messing with us. She writes, she tells her spiritual director who immediately starts doing deliverance prayers. And immediately after he does the deliverance prayers, the the diary is returned in the spot, but it's all burned and all charred and messed up. But you can see every single word on there. If you go to Luca today, it's on display. You can see the, the burned, charred diary of St. Gemma. Oh, wow. But every word's still visible. How cool is that? So, um... Her biggest suffering came when she was rejected three times to become a Passionist nun. Jesus said, it's okay, you will be buried as a Passionist nun. She took that to mean, because in her one of her visions, Jesus said this, he t- uh, she took that to mean that she would be a Passionist nun, although that never happened. At 25, she got really, really sick. Uh, I don't even know if they know what disease it was, because it, it was such a weird disease, but she knew that she was going to be dying at this point. She offered all of it up to Jesus. She suffered tremendously. I mean, more than anybody could suffer. They said her body became so thin. She was like skin and bones. She was attacked and mauled on her deathbed by a demon dog. No one believed her. She kept saying, she would be screaming, saying, I'm being attacked and being attacked. All the nurses at the hospital would say, oh, poor Gemma, she's delirious. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's getting to be the end. Yet one time a nurse was passing by her room, bringing water, a glass of water for her. And the God allowed uh, the nurse to see this vicious demon thing that was attacking Gemma. The nurse freaked out, screamed, dropped everything. The glass breaks all over the place, runs down the hallway, tells all the nurses what she sees, hysterical, says, you got to pray for Gemma, runs across the street, bangs on the door, gets the nuns at the convent across the street to start praying for Gemma. And once everyone started finally taking her seriously and praying for her, the attack stopped and she died peacefully. And she said, into your hands, I commend my spirit to Jesus and die with a smile on her face. So amazingly heroic death. And immediately after this, and I mean immediately, priests all over the area who knew who she was started saying that she would she was helping with their exorcisms. Possessed people who remember the, the exorcism, remember it going on, would say that she, they would see a, a beautiful woman. Her name was the one in black, the Jinx. That's what the demons called That's her, That's what the right? demons called her. Their nickname for her was the one in black, the Jinx. They hated her immediately would happen uh which she, she would start assisting in exorcisms and that's when t- the tides would turn and the demons would start to leave was after she appeared so she was never accepted as a nun was that because of her health she was never accepted as a nun because she was so sick exactly mm. yet when the passionists realized how holy she was they had her buried in a passionist habit an honorary passionist so they made what, her an honorary passionist yeah and that's, and that's what, what jesus said. said yep she was actually buried in that habit and that's written down in her diary and everything pretty crazy right so it all came true. She was beatified in 1933, canonized in 1934. And um, I will tell you, um, she is an incredibly powerful saint. The three things that we can take from this, uh, and Aunt, maybe you can comment on, on part of this, her, the three things that St. Gemma was exceptionally good at when it came to her, her spirituality was, number one, above all, an intense, and I mean radical love for Jesus, especially in his suffering and in his passion. 
there was a crucifix in the house that she lived in, that she was a guest in, and she was always in that room just staring at the crucifix, praying, crying, right, just asking Jesus for some of his suffering. She had an amazing, amazing appreciation for Jesus on the cross. That's something we should ask for. Yeah, I mean, I think I just read this in my class, just by his wounds we were healed, and it just means so much, so I don't blame her for looking at the crucifix. Exactly. And number two, the second thing she was really into uh, was she had an incredible awareness of her own sinfulness. As I said, the priest that she had her heard her confessions, I think Father Germanus said um, he never thought she intentionally sinned in her whole life. Yet in her prayers and in her diary, she's through tears just saying, Jesus, thank you so much for my many, for forgiving me. I don't understand why you're doing all these good things through me. She was so simple, so humble. She was so holy, yet she was the exact opposite of a snob about it. Yeah. <laughs> And because she was so holy, she saw so clearly. So that's why, even if her sins might appear small to us, that's why to her, they were big. Exactly. And that's the amazing thing is no matter how far you go, you're not going to be perfect. So you're so like that's why you don't have to worry about people in church judging you. Because if someone in holy is actually judging you, they're not actually holy. <laughs> you know, like if someone who's a true saint never even thinks twice about it. They don't compare themselves. They just want people to go to heaven. They just offer their sufferings up and think not, not nothing of it. So the second thing was awareness of her own sinfulness, her unworthiness before God, so humble, insanely humble. And number three, her love for the Eucharist. She would go to Mass as often as she could, sometimes twice a day, whenever she could. Uh, and uh, she would go into like a literal trance after receiving the Eucharist. Like she would receive the Eucharist, she would zone out, stare at the tabernacle, and people would come up to her and she would literally go into ecstatic union with Christ. They'd wave their hands in front of her. She wouldn't notice. They'd try to move her. They wouldn't be able to move her or get her out of her the position she was praying in. So her love for Jesus in the Eucharist was absolutely intense and amazing. So uh, we can all take something from that when it comes to getting to Mass whenever we can. Uh, and last but not least, I'll tell you my story. I know there's been a lot of me talking, but I guess this is something very close to my heart with St. Gemma, and I kind of want everyone to, to know. I didn't know who she was. When I was 19, I had my conversion. I had no who, idea who she was. She's not a very popular or common saint. She's getting more popular as the years go on, but especially after my conversion, like I had never heard of her. And this is after six to eight months of deep Catholic research. So, until one day I was on YouTube and I watched a video and it was called Faces of Modern Day Saints for Atheists to Contemplate. So it was all these just modern day saints. It was kind of a smack to atheist, the title of the video, but all these nice modern day saints, like John Paul, popular ones, right? Like St. Therese, John Paul II, Bless, uh, not the Blessed Mother, um, St. Uh, Teresa of Calcutta, Padre Pio, right? And I'm watching all these saints go by and their faces, and then I see her. She pops up. And now, remember, I was 19 at the time. She's probably about 19 when this picture was taken. So I see her, and the first kind of funny thing that I think now that I thought of was, wow, she's, like, kind of cute. <laughs> there's not that many cute saints out there. Like, there's a photograph, and she's not bad looking, you know? I'm like, in fact, she's really good looking. I'm like, I've never seen a really cute saint before. Okay, interesting. Who is it? Oh, St. Gemma Galgani. I see the name at the bottom. I didn't think anything of it. Interesting. All right, whatever. Now, as the video ends, the related video pops up, like the next video, you know, that's that they recommend you watch. And out of all the more popular saints, dozens of them, more popular than her, than her she is the recommended video that comes up. Go mm -hmm. oh, interesting. So I watched this little low-budget, five-minute, kind of poor documentary on her. It's only five minutes long or so. And I am just transformed by this. I'm struck by this. They go into her spirituality, they go into her life, and I just could not take my eyes away. I couldn't stop listening to what I was hearing. You know, you ever watch a really good movie, mm -hmm. uh, like in the movie theater, and it was so good that like the rest of the day, it's just like kind of subconsciously yeah. playing in your mind. 
That's what happens to me as if I just watched an incredible Marvel movie or something like that. But it was a five-minute kind of crappy documentary about St. Gemma. To the point where hours later, I'm thinking to myself, Dan, like, calm down. What's going on? Like, she, she was not leaving my mind. She wouldn't go anywhere. I was actually freaked out by it. The very next day, I go to spiritual direction with a priest at my church, Father Mass. We sit down at his house, and he literally says to me, I swear, this is how he starts it off. He goes, Dan, before spiritual direction, he says, uh, I, was, I was reading a book on a really special saint. She's not very common. I had never heard of her before I read this book in like my whole life. But for some reason, the entire time I was reading this book, I kept thinking about you and that I have to give you this book and you got to read it. Have you ever heard of St. Gemma Galgani? The next day, I'm like, <gasps> Father, you'll never believe this. But yesterday, I found out about her for the first time. I couldn't stop thinking about her. It's the craziest thing. He goes, oh, it's cool. He like wasn't <laughs> impressed because you know he's used to those things and having new Maria Esperanza, I guess. But he says to me, all right, well, I don't have the book now. I lent it to somebody else. For now, I'll take this book on exorcisms. I was like, uh, uh, all right. <laughs> so I, I take the book on exorcisms. I go home that night, and the first paragraph of the first page of the prologue, I start to read this book. And it's a real-life account of an exorcism that happened in 2006. And it said something like this. It said, the woman was being held down by four you know, grown men. The demon inside the woman was shrieking and screaming in a guttural tone. The priest looked down at his watch. The exorcist, the exorcism had been going on for like over 40 minutes now and they weren't getting anywhere. He wondered whether he should even just continue or just pack up and try again like the next day or next session. Right as he's about to call the exorcism off, all of a sudden, the demon inside, the woman screams, the one in black, oh no, the one in black is here, the jinx. I thought, what the heck? Who's the jinx? Who's the one in black? As we said, the next sentence says, the priest, because he was an experienced exorcist, knew that this was the demon's name for St. Gemma Galgani, who the possessed person later said had appeared in the room and helped the priest say the prayers. And it was at that point that the tides began to turn and the exorcism became successful. I'm reading this and I'm like, jaw on the floor. Yeah. No way. That's four times mm -hmm. in two days that she has reached out to me. And to make a very long story short, I started praying for her intercession. I started reading about her life, incredibly touched by it. And I asked her for those three things to be good at. To, I said, St. Gemma, have me, help me have a better understanding for Jesus' passion. Help me have a deeper awareness of my own sinfulness and more humble like you are. And finally, help me have a deeper love for the Eucharist. And to me, those are three separate things. I went on a retreat, had a normal mass, good mass. I paid attention, but nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. I received the blood of Christ. And I don't know if it was the alcohol, because it has the, obviously the contents of alcohol. But when the burn of the wine, which is not the wine, the blood, mm -hmm entered into my chest i felt that burning and i was looking at the crucifix and something snapped literally something snapped in me and all the things i just prayed for i can't even explain it but I, it was like a download of information i understood all of them as like one thought and uh, i was so touched I, I cried for like an hour straight and I, I don't mean to say that lightly like i don't want to go into my own experiences too much but if it, only if it's going to help souls for an hour straight i cried so she absolutely answered my prayer and helped me to have a deeper love for jesus in the eucharist uh, and in his passion. So she will absolutely help you. She's extremely powerful. Patron saint of pharmacists, patron saint of people with back problems, and incredibly helpful when it comes to fighting evil in all of its forms. Well, hopefully you didn't just hear Simba bark right then, but yeah, he's awesome. <laughs> uh, but Dan, I just want to say uh, thanks for doing all this research. And I know a lot of this came naturally because you've known so much about her for so long. But, you know, you made it pretty organized and made a little notepad. So that was <laughs> awesome. And also, while you were speaking, I felt like I was listening to a podcast. <laughs> I know it feels like inception because we were recording a podcast but i was learning and kind of envisioning everything you were saying so so thanks for that and i'm actually going to take that seriously i'm going to ask for her intercession more because i don't do that enough like you know like 
there's a lot of saints that specialize in a lot of different things and like i need to like literally ask them to help me with certain things so like Mm -hmm. i'm definitely gonna ask her for help and that's a real thing. The saints really do find you. As I said, all this information, I didn't just like decide to get into looking into her. Like she reached out to me unexpectedly. Yeah. And the saints will do that for all of us. And maybe she's reaching out to someone, one of our podcast listeners, and they're going to see this title and be blown away. Yeah, I think she's reaching out, reaching yeah. out to most of our podcast listeners. Right. I mean, she is um, just straight fire from heaven. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so she's underrated. She's on a hot streak recently because people are really coming in with lots of cool stories of her intercession, especially the last few years. Uh, so I highly recommend everyone to to read that book on her life. It's a little hard to read. It's old-fashioned translation. So it's like the translation was probably done 100 years ago or 80, 90 years ago. But if you can get through it, uh, it's an incredible book. And um, and you can start asking for her intercession today, tonight, St. Gemma Galgani, especially if you're going through suffering or you, be, you feel like you're being attacked by evil in any way. Yep, I like it. You want to close with a prayer? Sure. We're going to skip the uh, the saint uh, or devo- devotional cup um, because um, we are... Uh, this whole podcast was like a devotion. Yeah, it was a whole one devotion. Just yeah. kind of me. Yeah, just going mm-hmm. off, but go ahead. Cool. All right. Name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Dear Lord, we pray for the intercession of St. Gemma Galgani, uh, that she helps us and all of our lis- all the listeners. And we ask that, uh, kind of like her, that she helps us to have a greater love for Jesus and a better awareness of our sin. And finally an increased love for the Eucharist. St. Gemma, help us to be like you. Even just give us a fraction of the same love that you had for Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless. Amen.